if we were to have the same weather as in February 21, if we were to have that same weather this summer, we would be in a similar situation where not all customers would have their demand met. Agencies can no longer do it by themselves anymore. There needs to be collaboration, cross-collaboration um, at every level, whether it's local, state, federal, there needs to be a collaborative effort to address these issues. That way you're bringing the proper resources to bear to solve it peacefully and in the best interest of that particular client or patient. You know, the old day of ring the bell, run to the fence, touch it, say ollie ollie outs and free and go back in and call it a fire drill is over. You have to create these as training opportunities. And that means plan to train as opposed to plan to check off the box. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Security Management Highlights. I'm your host, the security guy, Chuck Harold. Beth Garza is a senior fellow at the R Street Institute in Austin, Texas, a think tank that specializes in policy research. Ms. Beth, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thank you for having me. It's, uh, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Me too. We're going to talk about the Texas power grid and protecting it against winter weather. Uh, we remember back in February of 2021 this year, severe winter storm, severe, severe maybe once in a generation kind of storm came in. Things got frozen. A lot of problems with that. Give us a brief overview of what happened there. I'm happy to. As as someone who lives in Austin, Texas, and who uh, was in the cold and dark for 81 hours during that storm, I uh, not only did I live the experience uh, because of my background and experience, I understood what was happening. And so that, frankly, that put me in a better place than than many folks that didn't understand what was going on. But basically, on a you know Valentine's Day Sunday night. Um, cold weather descended, which is what it does in Texas. It moves in from the north. Cold weather, weather descended into the state. Temperatures dropped. Uh, we had already, over the last, you know, the prior two or three days, had some, for us, a winter, you know, winter weather, which is, you know, sleety, rainy, freezy stuff that makes travel really bad and treacherous. That had already occurred, but then temperatures really dropped on that Sunday evening. And in fact, we set a record all-time peak demand uh, Sunday evening at 7 o'clock. But as the night got later and later, it got colder and colder. And around, you know, in the, in the midnight to early morning hours on Monday, as temperatures dropped, power plants were unable to uh, stay online. They were unable to continue to operate. And the challenge with electricity electricity systems is that demand and supply have to be matched exactly all the time. And in this case, we had a, a situation where there wasn't enough supply available to meet rapidly increasing customer demand. And in those very rare and very extreme situations, the independent system operator has the very tough decision to make to order the curtailment of customers. That means, you know, force turning customers off. Um, and that action gets implemented by local transmission and distribution companies or utilities. Um, those actions were carried out in multiple steps starting at about 1 a.m. Monday morning. And in the in the extreme almost 20 gigawatts of load were interrupted or curtailed, turned off. 
And that amounted to probably as, you know, could have been as much as a third of, or at least a third of total demand. And so that, that just gives you a sense, you know, one out of three households, <laughs> you know, potentially did not have electricity. Causes were that, of that were, you know, at the time, not particularly clear with the passage of time and investigation have become increasingly clear. And uh, I, I chalk the causes up to um, lack of winter preparedness um, by the power plants. And, and I want to be clear, it's not, I, I don't think they did nothing. <laughs> I think what they did certainly was insufficient. And so that's why I say the lack of winter preparedness. Um, and part of that uh, responsibility rests on the natural gas system as well. Um, as electricity demands increase to the very high levels they they could have could have reached the fuel of choice that is needed to produce electricity to meet those demands is natural gas natural gas producers uh, uh, don't rarely produce when, when it gets uh, when it gets very cold production is shut in storage is you know the storage capability is what it is um, that those resources were drawn the gas, uh, industry will say they they were the solution, not the problem. Uh, I, I don't I don't uh, I don't ascribe to that belief. Um, I think they were a part of the part of the situation as well, and there's some things to be addressed on that side, as there are on the electricity side as well. So let's talk about what we're doing uh, 2022. How are we getting ready for the winter this time in Texas? Uh, what are the lessons learned, and uh, kind of walk me through some new steps that may have taken to prevent uh, uh prevent this and when i say prevent i don't mean that like in a punitive way but you know this was in all fairness it was a once kind of in a lifetime event where it's two below zero in texas and i'm not sure anybody could have 100 percent prepared for that but now that we know what are we going to do to make that better next time lots of things have been happening um starting with the legislature um our, our texas legislature meets every other year it just so happens to be the odd number of years, which makes it easy to remember. And they were in session during this uh, during this catastrophe, and uh, appropriately so, jumped right into the issue and passed. Um, oh, I think something like twenty five to thirty uh, sp specific pieces of legislation dealing with um, the electricity grid, the natural gas grid the or natural gas system, the financial impacts of the storm. Something like 25 pieces of legislation came out of, of that of this session. I, I compare and contrast that to a normal session where maybe a handful of items would be related to the electricity industry at all. The, you know, this year you had at least four times as much. So those that legislation has to be turned into action. And that action generally manifests itself through the regulatory commission in, in Texas. We, we call it a public utility commission. One of those, some of those actions were a complete, um, I've called it a decapitation of, of, the, of the prior uh, uh, regulatory commission, a decapitation of the organization that manages the uh, electricity grid here in Texas, ERCOT, um, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas. 
that organization was sort of chopped off at the top and reformatted um, legislatively. In the aftermath of the storm, we're left with the sort of the two organizations that you would provide the most leadership in trying to figure out what the answers are. We're starting with a sort of a brand new set of, 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 of governance and leadership, um, which was interesting. I, it just, uh, uh, that was an unprecedented uh, situation. But at the Public Utility Commission, those, the new commissioners have, have taken their role um, uh, to heart. They have worked tremendously hard uh, staff has been uh, tremendously, you know, had to do lots of work in support of that. And I, I, I don't have a count of the number of new rules that have been put in place after the storm. But some of the key ones, I, I would start with the weatherization requirement. Um, the power plant weatherization requirement rule is much stricter and um, uh, and was, well, it's a much stricter rule. Uh, prior, prior to this, this new rule, the only weather, you just, companies, power plant owners just had to say they had a winterization plan and then attest that they had actually complied with their plan. We're starting, the new rule has some uh, aspects of the plan, some requirements that, that folks have to meet. Now, there's still not a performance obligation uh, in terms of, you know, you, can't, you you don't have to guarantee that you can actually generate, but you do have to guarantee that you've taken all the steps you know how to take to be able to generate, including if your power plant was not able to operate either in 2021 or the event we had in 2011, you have to identify what the cause of that failure was and attest a, a to the fact that uh, that cause has been uh, 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 remediated, handled, taken care of, is no longer an issue. So that's that's electricity winterization. One of the other challenges that we had during the storm was the 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 lack of of communication between the natural gas system and the electricity system. And what I mean by that is we ended up in in situations where because we had to we didn't have enough electricity for everybody. Some customers had to be curtailed. Unfortunately, in the process of curtailing customers, some of those customers indeed were what would be deemed critical natural gas facilities. And so we've, we've initiated a process to uh, better identify what those natural gas facilities are and communicate, you know, assertively communicate that information to the electricity um, providers to try to eliminate any of that um, sort of unintended curtailment, if you will. So that, that's been happening. We've got um, new rules regarding um, uh, retail customer protections. Those just went in place right uh, just last week. And a whole wide variety of discussions about the whole, what I would call the wholesale electric market. That is the, 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 the rules and processes by which electricity is, is paid for, if you will. You know, Texas electricity generation, the power plant owners are not guaranteed any kind of revenue. The only revenues they get 
are those that are are they earn by producing. That's the those are the current Texas rules. We are spending a lot of time talking about uh, the market, the wholesale market for electricity, and that gets into a very nuanced, complicated set of rules that most um, you know customers that just pay their electricity bill they don't they don't know or care about or or should worry about. Um, but it is it, those are the the underpinnings of of how we how we try to assure the the uh, highest availability of low cost resources to all customers is through these these market rules and tremendous activity on that culminating with the the public utility public utility commission um, uh, adopting a roadmap for a variety of market changes that they're looking at. And I expect we will spend a lot of 2022 um, uh, reviewing and and implementing many of those changes. Ms. Beth, I think uh, Texas seems to be on top of it this year. And uh, how, how do you feel about it? Do you feel it's going to make a big improvement over last year? If we were to have the same weather as in February 21, if we were to have that same weather this summer, we would be in a similar situation where not all customers would have their demand met. Now, the hope and the expectation is that we could manage that rationing better than we were able to do in February of 21. And in fact, because we, we couldn't manage the rationing, <laughs> we, couldn't, we couldn't rotate those outages around so that more customers could share that burden. Um, because so much load had to be curtailed, once that was curtailed, there was, there, there was no other place to go. And um, I, I certainly wouldn't expect that situation to occur, but I, frankly, I wouldn't have expected the February 2021 20, situation to occur either. So, Ms. Beth, thank you so much for coming on Security Management Highlights. Great story and good luck to you. We're going to be thinking about you this winter and uh, be safe. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity to ramble on about a topic that I, I, uh, I am very invested in. Thank you. Dave Weiner is the founder and CEO of Secure Measures LLC and the former Regional Chief of Police and Emergency Management of the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Mr. Dave Weiner, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thank you, Chuck, for having me on today. Yeah, it's been about a year since we talked. Uh, today's topic is Crisis Stabilization and Scene Management. I love that title. Another way to say it is Crisis Intervention, Stabilizing the Situation. Sounds tactical. It is to a degree, but what we're really talking about here is kind of the new trend, which I was going to say everything old is new again, the new trend towards incorporating psychological evaluators with response teams. And when those response teams could be police, they could be fire, they could be corporate security, which we'll talk about today. And when we incorporate a psychological professional to some of these responses, we get a better result. Tell us where this is coming from. I, I mean, COVID is certainly a heightened everybody's mental awareness about these issues. We, we have more suicides than we do homicides. Twice as many, by the way. You're more likely to die of your own hand than a, than a murderer. This is a serious issue going on in society right now. So talk to me about this. So, yeah. So since since the advent of COVID and even before the advent of COVID, I think that there, there has always been a, a for lack of a better term, mental health crisis uh, in our country for a variety of reasons. <clears throat> but the pandemic has certainly exacerbated those conditions. 
Um, and in some of the work we do with some of our law enforcement and mental health partners, um, especially the local crisis lines here in Los Angeles, where I'm based, um, you know, calls to the crisis lines have skyrocketed uh, throughout 2020 and throughout 2021. Um, and mental health holds are up roughly to about 50% uh, in 2021 versus 2020 when they were kind of a, a bit less just prior to the pandemic. Now, I worked at Disney and Fox. We got 5,000 people on, you know, 10 acres. It's a city, right? And we had all kinds of issues where there were crises going on every day, where somebody had a bad day at work, there was boyfriend-girlfriend stuff going on, there was harassment going on, non-criminal things that caused for a lot of security intervention. I wish I had some mechanism that you're discussing back in the day to handle this stuff. Translate this into a corporate security model for me, because... I think as a practitioner, this is something we should start really paying attention to in the security world. Sure, absolutely. So, you know, there are many different models, as you talked about PET, um, and now there are things like um, PMRT uh, here in Los Angeles. There's also the MET team, um, which is the mental evaluation team or mental evaluation unit. Uh, if you're referring to LAPD, MET is the LASD model, which is basically uh, a deputy or police officer paired with a mental health clinician. Um, however, translating that into a corporate security context really goes back to actually training individual people in the aspects of mental health identification, you know, understanding the nuances, um, dispelling any myths, like by and large people who have mental illness, which is about one in five. Um, and I would say it's a little bit higher, maybe one in four uh, throughout the pandemic, have an undiagnosed mental health condition. Um, and training them to understand that um, folks who are in crisis and identifying those things and then how to, how to better handle those situations um, throughout through using empathy and compassion and taking time to do so. So back in the day, this was HR's function inside the corporate environment. They would have people come to them and say, listen, I got to have five days off. I got this thing going on. I got a domestic violence issue. I got a drug issue. A lot of times corporations send people to these outreach programs, right? That's part of your package, your corporate package. It seemed to be handled fairly well, I thought, back then. And, and, and by the way, if you start getting into discussions about my uh, mental health, and I don't mean mental illness, I just mean mental health, which is a little different, I have you know, uh, things like uh, HIPAA pop up, right? And how far can I go as a employer to dig into this? How much can I ask, right? So tell me about some of these, mm -hmm. uh, these challenges that, that the new teams have to kind of look at uh, to get people really in a better space. Because if they, if, they, if they can come back to work in two days, that's what we want. Yeah, a hundred percent. And again, it really goes back to recognize somebody who's in crisis, you know, and obviously corporate security teams have a lot to deal with. You know, what are what are the bigger issues right now? Bigger issues are, are always cyber and physical security, um, as well as looking at violence prevention, threat assessment and those type of things. And but having physical and cyber safety or security also translates into having some level of psychological safety in the workplace teaching managers, teaching other, teaching employees um, about, you know, like to your point about mental health, and then again, dispelling um, myths about mental illness, like people with mental illness are dangerous. Well, that's not necessarily true, 
right? If, but if you combine severe mental illness or untreated severe mental illness, along with like illegal narcotics uh, or something, people can then be certainly become violent, but that's not based off of just their own mental illness. That's based off a combination of factors. So I, th I think understanding kind of the, the, the subtle nuances and training teams to understand the principles behind crisis stabilization and then managing the scene. You know, crisis stabilization scene management is more of a fancy way of crisis stabilization in particular is a fancy way of saying de-escalation, which is a hot topic in law enforcement, as you know. Um, but you're we prefer using that term because you're really stabilizing and then you're also managing the scene and you need to do it in a way that shows compassion and empathy to the people that you're dealing with, especially those who are suffering mental mental uh, mental illness or in crisis. It's a magic word. Right? If you if you inject empathy into any organization, any model, any structure you're building, you are going to be way better off. It's, it's just people don't like to discuss empathy because it's kind of emotional. But empathy really is different than sympathy. Empathy is identifying me identifying with Dave's emotional state. I'm identifying. I see a similarity to mine. Sympathy can be kind of artificial, but empathy you really can't can't fake. Uh and, you know, who needs empathy more than actually the first responders themselves? You want to stabilize a scene for a crisis, make sure that the first responders are stable. Because if they lose it, everybody loses it. That's that's absolutely correct. And in some of the training that we do, we really stress and talk about, um, you know, first responder mental health and how when you're dealing in particular, some of the training we do focuses on the veteran our veteran population. And, you know, it's, it's really understanding that, listen, every veterans and first responders suffer very similar trauma and understanding that we all as human beings suffer some level of trauma and being able to relate to somebody's experience allows you to have some level of empathy. You know, my situation may not be the same as yours. However, if I can empathize with you and understand at least a little bit where you're coming from, then we're, we're going to be in a better place to facilitate some dialogue. Tell me how in the security environment we can use these techniques to become, oh, what's a better word, uh, to get ahead of these things. In other words, instead of people calling us up and saying, I need security because something happened, how about I need security before something happens? Are we, are we able to move to that model if we use these techniques? I, I think there is, there is a model where, um, you know, not, not the crystal ball method where, you know, you're, you're trying to figure out, but I think training people to recognize the signs and symptoms of somebody who is in crisis, just like we talk about behavioral indicators as it relates to workplace right. violence, you can still teach someone the, the, you know, the indicators of crisis and then in, in for, not enforcing, but, you know, having people learn how to communicate those things like, hey, I'm not here to get Billy or Susie in trouble, but I think they're having some issues and I really want to be able to help them. And how do I do that? Right. And giving them tools, but also kind of going back to what you were saying earlier about working at the studio a lot. What's the culture of the organization? Do people feel comfortable doing that? And that really comes from a leadership uh, perspective. Um, as well as kind of the cultural nuances of an organization. Do people feel comfortable bringing these kind of things up and or reporting them? 
that's always been the challenge as, as you know, is reporting, you know, people are afraid of quote, getting people in trouble, but you can still report things and not get somebody in trouble. Give me your best practices for a corporate security practitioner. How could they start to look at this issue, uh, possibly add some team members to the threat assessment team that they may not have thought of before? Sure. So I think, I think first and foremost is, is trying to understand knowing what you don't know, right? Understanding what's going on in the mental health community, understanding data and statistics, and then taking a look at, you know, your own organization, uh, maybe even reviewing historical incidents um, involving folks who may or may not have been in crisis. Um, If you don't have any of those, that's fine. Look at other organizations similar to yours that may have had those. Talk to your peers. Um, And then, you know, engage in some training for for you and your team. I think that's the bigger part. And I I really think that once you get training and once you start identifying, you know, knowing what you don't know, then that's also going to help inform the type of resources you're going to need as well. How large is your organization? Is it a global organization or is it just um, domestically domiciled? Like there's there's a lot of different different factors. How is your agency or organization structured uh, in order to address some of these issues? What resources do you already have? I think that's an important part. You know, there there are some there are some organizations that do have like organizational psychologists, um, but to your point, they have programs like EAP. What type of services do they offer for those in crisis? Um, and are they twenty four seven or are they only Monday through Friday business hours? You know, those type of things. Like you you can you can take a look at a myriad of things, but I think training and education um, to understand and know what you don't know is incredibly important. Mr. Dave Weiner, thank you so much for coming on Security Management Highlights, my friend. Been a great conversation. Absolutely, Chuck. Thank you for having me today. Guy Blissner is a founding member of the Idaho Office of School Safety and Security, and he serves as the school safety and security analyst assigned to schools in Southeast Idaho. Mr. Guy Blissner, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Well, Chuck, thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity. Today, we're going to talk about orderly reunification of students post-incident. Now, I say post-incident and not active shooter because we often think of reunification of students in a great big tragic event like active shooter, which certainly is important, but there's lots of other incidents all year round. Let's start by defining reunification so we can kind of focus our conversation. We here in Idaho decided that we needed the definition as the basis. And for us, it is the process used to return a child in your care to their parent in anything other than the normal end of day process and document that process. Let's talk about how we set this up. Uh, You had an interesting study uh, of your recent uh, shooting at a middle school. Tell us about that and, and what you learned from that. This was a May 6th incident last spring in Rigby Middle School. Um, We had a, as school shooting incidents go, a fairly low level event. We had two, we had three injured, all of them were treated and released on the day. So, but that doesn't change what took place. And so for us, what we found out almost immediately is that a traumatized school staff is not operationally capable to a great extent that you have to give them some help to handle this reunification process and you know if if you've seen or been through that that very traumatic event of of 
shooting and people injured and you know being moved from one facility to another by police and all of those elements as a classroom teacher kind of the best you can hope for is you keep your you, you keep your kids in a huddle and know where they are so we had to we had to reclutch that the district did a spectacular job their district service center was fairly close they stripped it they brought 45 people over and basically ran the the reunification event, which was not their plan, by the way, they followed their concept of operations, but not as it was as it was charted out. So they did a very, very good job. But that's the first element we found out is you absolutely in a traumatic event, do not expect that a significant portion of your staff is going to be operationally capable. Where do we find the capacity to run these things? Uh, you know, we could appoint a, a czar. Uh, at a school with a big budget that says that's your job to coordinate all those kind of things. Well, most schools don't have that. Where, where do we get the resources and capacities to run something like this? Because in a big incident, that's going to take a lot of bodies. It's going to depend entirely on your unique circumstances. Here in Idaho, um, we've got a lot of rural areas. Um, if you are in a small rural, and Rigby was a small rural town, it's a fairly sizable school district, however. So they chose their district office service center staff as that. I have seen schools where they have put together a community, they call it the reunification team. They exercise them once a year. And it's the folks in the courthouse and in the in the legal office and in the dental lot. Most small communities will shut everything down to go help deal with this. The key to this, however, is that you identify those people, you train those people, because an untrained person is more of an impediment than they are a help. And everybody is going to show up when these things happen. And I mean, even if it's you know, a power outage and we're reunifying kids. By the way, a school does not need a lot of help in a power outage because they're, you know, they're a little, they're a little dark, but they're okay on, on the operational component. It's when something of, of a traumatic or critical nature happens that they're going to need help. But that's what we've done is you have to look for that available manpower in the areas where there is available manpower in your community. Let's talk about technology. I had my first computer in 1983. It cost me $2,000 and it had a 25, uh, no, I take that back. It had two floppy drives, right? So I've seen technology uh, evolve and emerge in many, many great ways. But I've always said, you have to think about the single point of failure issue. And what is your tin cannon wire fallback position? So for utilizing technology for these programs and these plans to keep track of students, don't we need a plan B in case, to your point, power's out and databases are down and computers aren't working and, and we don't have that ability to use the technology? How are we going to make your gate program work uh, the old-fashioned way? Well, and anybody who has been to their local convenience store when, the, when their uh, cash register is down and you can't buy your cup of coffee... Imagine the level of angst that goes on if it's trying to retrieve your kid when you think that there's a problem. Um, you know, the computer is down is not going to be a viable answer. And what we recommend and have seen that is effective as a part of the registration process, parents will fill out a reunification form. The school district files, the school files that form, puts it in their reunification kit 
that if they have to leave, they take with them and or it's there at the school. But it has the information. It has the child, has the contact information, has who is available to take them home. And then we use a tear off sheet so that when you go to the and we're, we're proponents of the two gate system, a, re, a request gate, a secure student holding area and a release gate. So that when you go to the request gate, they pull up the forms for your kids that are already filled out. They verify that you are who you're who you are in whatever method that school needs. In some schools in Idaho, there are 70 kids. We know everybody and they're going to check visually verified. In large schools, they're going to check the ID, but whatever that verification method is, you first do that. You then check to make sure they're authorized to have the child. You tear off that bottom piece and it stays with you. The, the rest of it goes into the secure holding area to get the kid. Parents walk over to the release gate. Child is found. They tear off the piece that says they were here and we released them there. And the last one, when you sign out your child, they file that piece so that you have a clean paper trail of where that child was, who got them, when they got them, who released them, who verified. Again, in the aftermath of these things, sometimes it doesn't matter what you did. It matters what you can prove you did. Because there's the, you know, the old ham that you can sue everything, including a ham sandwich, will follow most of these events. Right, that is excellent, excellent advice and very well said, my friend. I mean, it is about what you can prove. And I, and I love this idea of having this paper backup. Now, my security philosophy in general has always been this. You can't really hire people to protect you. You can protect yourself better. Your personal safety is about you and how you feel and how you act. And so if, we, if you bring this down to a student level, there's the hierarchy of the teacher and the student. And, of course, the teacher's in charge and the student follows. How much of this can we push off on the students to help with the process? In other words, can the student help participate in the reunification to some degree, to kind of smooth this process over. Because, you know, it's going to be a lot of moving parts, like you said, in capacity. So if everybody's participating to some degree on an individual level towards the same goal, maybe that's helpful. Oh, absolutely. And and a lot of this depends on the on the demographics of your student population. A K-3 elementary, you're not going to get a lot of student help. If you have a a junior high, high school, you may be able to use some of those kids and they may fill in some of those volunteer positions. They may be, you know, your student body officers may be the runners who take that request for a student from the request desk to the secure holding area and escort them to the release desk. You can do those kinds of things, particularly with older students. Um, here in Idaho, we have a lot of K-12 facilities and those older students are very much considered a resource. But we absolutely let parents know that in that event, do you authorize your student to be used as a resource and get that authorization so that we know we're covered and, and the parents know that that child is engaged in the process. Guy, have you seen any emerging new definitions? I, I'm not really phrasing this right, but uh, bear with me here. So it used to be that a crisis was defined like A, and now it seems that we're defining crisis differently. Maybe smaller things we didn't think was a crisis 10 years ago is now a big deal. Are you finding this is affecting your planning? Oh, it absolutely has to affect your planning again. And, and you know, we set it based on our definition. When you return 
parent or students to their parents in anything other than the normal end of day process. You should use elements of this. And most of the elements I'm concerned about in those situations are the documentation component, because, you know, heaven help us if we give a student to a non-custodial father, grandfather, mother who's estranged, any of those things. So we believe that when you're returning those in anything that's unexpected for the parent, because as you noted, we do, it's orchestrated and well-involved kids get to school and they follow the process. The bell rings at the end of the day and they follow the process. Everybody expects that. It's when you do something unexpected that it's not maybe high level crisis, but certainly from a administrator's standpoint, and, you know, I sat in that chair for a while. It's it's outside of normal operations and anything that's outside of normal operations causes angst and confusion. Does practice help if we have quarterly drills to say, listen, during a, during a reunification incident, all you kids are going to go to that building over there. Let's practice walking there. Let's create some muscle memory so it happens a little better than if we hadn't practiced. I'm an old coach. And, you know, I, I absolutely believe that you practice what you play because you're going to play what you practice. Now, the issue is, what does that practice look like? And in reunification, you're two and a half times more likely as an educator to be struck by lightning than to be involved in an active shooter event. You will absolutely over your career <clears throat> return children to their parents and other than the normal end of day process multiple times, generally multiple times yearly. So that if you use that element, it becomes simply the way you return kids to parents in anything that's unusual. The real benefit to a common process, particularly across a district platform, is there may be schools that are unaffected by whatever the event was, and you can take some of their excess capacity and they can help you, but they also know the process. So, yeah, it's very much a, a practice what you play, play what you practice. But education being what it is, teachers are exceptionally jealous of instructional time. If you continue to impugn on their instructional time overtly and repeatedly, there's going to be a, a pushback against that. You have to figure out how to make these things, how to make your training effective. You know, the old day of ring the bell, run to the fence, touch it, say all the all the outs and free and go back in and call it a fire drill is over. You have to create these as training opportunities. And that means plan to train as opposed to plan to check off the box. You know, I've been doing this for about 17 years now. I started when shortly following Columbine, I was a district administrator. They moved over. I would love to, to spread what we're finding out works. Uh, again, let's share the wealth and make everybody safer and more secure. Absolutely. Thanks so much for coming on Security Management Highlights, my friend. Truly my pleasure.